if you're going to show a firefight, show what a firefight is really like. You don't see the other guy. You're firing into the darkness. You're shooting at flashes in the jungle. It's not just heroics. The highest compliment a soldier can pay to another soldier is, well, he did his job. And it's that sense of duty and responsibility that, that I found appealing. And that's what's appealing to a lot of the readers at times. I just came up with the basic concept that it would be very real. I thought that was very important. I was only concerned with getting the first issue together. And we had no idea where it was going to go. But that's the way it always is. I'm Larry Hama, and I am a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to comics legend Larry Hama. Yeah, it was a great conversation about his comic book career, uh, growing up as a third-generation Japanese-American in New York, uh, all kinds of stuff. Uh, Sharon, uh, can you check your mic? Something's wrong with your voice. Is that better? <laughs> well, as you can tell, this is clearly uh, not my co-hostess with the most is Sharon. It's it's our friend of the pod, Dan Wu, food guy, rabble rouser, and Lexington City Council candidate. Dan's, as you recall, a guest from the pod, and he's the co-host of the podcast, Where Are Y'all Really From? Dan, welcome back to Modern Minorities. But uh, what are you doing here, man? Um, I don't know. You asked me to be here. Uh, no, I, I could not miss the opportunity to talk to Larry Hama. He is just an absolute comic book legend and someone that I've admired since I was a kid. Yeah, so here's a quick bio for those of you who might not know who Larry Hama is. Larry Hama is an American comic book writer. He's an artist, an actor, musician, and he's been in the business since the 60s. Larry is actually best known to American comic book readers as a writer and editor for Marvel Comics, where he wrote the licensed comic book series G.I. Joe, A Real American Hero, based on the famous Hasbro toy line. But a lot of people will say it told kind of a more authentic telling of teamwork in the military. Larry's also known for having written the series Wolverine, The Nth Men, The Ultimate Ninja, and Elektra. He created the character Bucky O'Hara, which was developed into a comic book, a toy line, and a televised cartoon. But really interestingly, it's in the 80s, Larry helped create and was the editor for the comic book The Nam, which was arguably one of the most authentic retellings of the Vietnam War from the American perspective. It was up there and even surpassing Platoon, the, the famed movie. And 1987, when the series launched, issue number one outsold the X-Men. It's uh, Larry's merging of his Japanese-American heritage, his military service, his love of comics and the art, which he tells us the real reason why is really interesting. And a shout out to both Dan and I's mutual friend, Keith Chow at Hard Knock Media for the intro to Larry. So I'm, it was just so much fun having this conversation, Dan, but what do you think about Larry? Oh, it was absolutely, I mean, it was, it was a little surreal. I had to kind of shake off the fanboy a little bit and put on my podcaster hat for it, but it was just amazing hearing the perspective of somebody who's been in the industry for that long. And just honestly, one of my takeaways is how 
serendipitously and chaotically a career can start. It's not just like he went to school for X and then he applied for Y and he got this job, but just like through a random series of coincidences and luck and skill and panache, he broke into the industry and solidified himself as an iconic figure. Yeah, and there's going to be mention of a lot of names that you might not have heard of. Google them while you're listening. People like Neil Adams and and many more. Larry is certifiably up there with some of these legends that he's mentioned, but these were kind of movers and shakers in the industry, and Larry was among them. And again, just such an authentic, thoughtful approach to kind of a really awesome kind of career in life. So we hope you really enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Larry Hama. Larry, welcome to the pod. It's so great to have you here. Well, thank you for having me. Well, Larry, you're, uh, for at least for Dan and I, you're famous slash infamous, but I'm not sure everyone else knows about you yet. I-, I guess the first question on everyone's mind is, where are you from? I was born in Manhattan, raised in Queens, um, live in Manhattan and upstate New York at present. <laughs> Do you ever get a follow-up question from, I don't know, Punjabi taxi drivers? Yeah. Uh, no, where, where, where's your mother from? <laughs> and I say, Sacramento. <laughs> where are your grandparents from? Seattle. Yeah, I, I, my grandparents, my grandfather came over in the, eight, in, in the 1800s, late 1800s. And he was here over 10 years before he could bring my grandmother over. Wow. Yeah. And they had, because they had a daughter who never left Japan. She was 12 when my grandmother was ready to come over, and she and that was like marriage age. Yeah. <laughs> in Meiji era Japan. And she wanted to stay and she married a local farmer and you know had a family in Japan. So in some ways your your family kind of got over here before all of the really racist, specific anti-Asian, anti-immigration laws came about in the late 1800s, kind of snuck you in there and yeah they just uh, squeaked through but you know, there was a huge still a huge amount of prejudice and i mean they were in, in california they burned down like two entire chinese towns yeah <laughs> that, that's how lock california got started all the refugees from those mm-hmm. burnt towns like started this town called lock on on, on the river yeah which is since, still there it's kind of amazing yeah since, since we are in the realm of comic books and you are a certified comic book legend i'd love to hear a little bit about your origin story basically like going back to your grandparents but yeah how did you all end up in manhattan and queens eventually well my grandparents and my mom and all of the sisters were in a relocation camp a concentration camp really mm-hmm. called tule lake mm-hmm. and it, it was like a special camp for supposed dissidents and unruly and suspicious. It was a higher security facility than the others because simply because my grandfather had been the treasurer of the Okayama Kenjinkai, which is the Okayama Prefecture Family Association. It's very much like uh, a Chinese Tan. You know, it, it's all the people from one district have this association you know and it was basically a social thing and they made him the treasurer because he was like the local socket bootlegger (laughs) 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 and you know he had he had no political anything going and but they targeted all these organizations so my mom and her sisters didn't want you know their elderly parents to go off to a camp by themselves so they they voluntarily went with them and after the 
the war, I think before the war was over, they got, they got released and they were in Cleveland of all places. And then eventually my mom moved to, to Manhattan in New York because she wanted to go to the Fashion Institute of Technology. Yeah. FIT. Just oh, yeah. Over on the West side. Yeah. And so, and then the, the sisters followed and for a while they all lived in the same apartment building on the Upper West Side. Mm. And then my mom's younger sister moved back to Sacramento and her middle sister moved to Washington, D.C. And that's where those branches of the family stayed. And then my dad, who was, was a jeweler and a watchmaker and an optician, he had a little shop in the Bronx. And then him and my mom bought a little Cape Cod house out in the eastern border of Queens, still New York City, but everybody who lived in that area of Queens called Manhattan, the city. Yeah. <laughs> and never went there because I went to the High School of Art and Design, which was in Manhattan yeah. in the 50s on the east side. And to get there, I had to walk about five or six blocks to where the bus line started and take the bus. Port Authority? No, no, I, I, this is in Queens. Oh, oh is this in Queens? Yeah, yeah, yeah. The bus down Hillside Avenue to 179th Street where the subway started and then take the subway <laughs> to, to Lexington and, uh, and 53rd uh, and then walk another five blocks to the school every day. So it was like a 90-minute, at least a 90-minute commute. What was, I had a friend visit me in the city a few years ago in the before times and he was like, and he's from the Midwest. And he was like, the diversity just kind of punches you in the face when you get to Manhattan. It's kind of hard to yeah. not live that kind of melting pot experience. But again, in the 50s and 60s, I think New York City kind of had that. But the well, the era was, what was it like as a Japanese kid doing that 90-minute commute both ways from Queens? Well, let, let, let me preface that with the fact that from kindergarten to the seventh grade, I was the only non-white person in the school. Mm. This was a working class, Italian, Irish, Jewish neighborhood. And there were a smattering of like Ukrainians and Poles and Germans and mm -hmm. what have you. But it was pretty much all white people yeah. <laughs> or semi-official white people. <laughs> people who actually had even been considered white 30 years previously. Right, right. Who are now accepted, and but at, oddly, I I never experienced any blatant racism. I was pretty much accepted, and I really believe that language, or your your accent and your body language, yeah, is ninety five percent of being accepted anywhere. Mm. Yeah, I guess this is like you know something left over from prehistoric times. Mm -hmm. <laughs> you know. He, it was a survival, a good survival trait. If from like half a mile away through the haze, you see this guy walking towards you, you could tell from his walk whether he was like your friend or your foe. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, so that sort of birds in. And same thing with language. It's like the biblical shibboleth. Mm -hmm. It was if you weren't uh, if you were a Jew, you couldn't pronounce certain words the correct way. You know, which was sort of like the secret handshake. It's almost right. like an evolutionary version of fake it till you make it. Yeah, but this was about being accepted. And, and there was this big foo-foo a few years back about uh, a Chinese-American soldier in Iraq who got, got into a whole bunch of trouble because he fell asleep on guard duty or something, and, he, and then he killed himself. But he had been bullied throughout. And it occurred to me, well, he was bullied because he had an accent. <laughs> you know? Because I remember 
I was in a unit with, with a Chinese American kid who had been born and grew, grown up in Houston. Okay. This is a Chinese kid who was like six foot one and comes from Houston and talked with this complete, authentic Texas drawl, you know. <laughs> and everybody just called him Tex because that was more important, you know. <laughs> that made me go, wow. And I think maybe. That's a sort of a skill set that, that I developed early that, that I can adapt my speech patterns mm -hmm, mm -hmm. to whoever I'm speaking to. It's funny. I didn't grow up around a lot of Asians as a kid, but I grew up in the South and I can kind of turn my accent, my Southern accent up and down as sure. needed, depending on, it's not quite code switching, but it's, yeah, the way you walk, the way you talk mm -hmm. is, yeah, we, because we use our eyes and our ears kind of more and to your point, your eyes from a distance, that's that's fascinating. Yeah, you know, I, I could turn my army persona on and off. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, these are all survival traits. Yeah. That leads me to my next question. You're going to art and design school. Mm. What did you want to be when you grew up back then? Mm. Well, way back then, I wanted to be a fashion designer. Mm. Why? Um, I like the ladies. You know? <laughs> <laughs> I mean, in sixth grade, I had a, a I had two subscriptions to magazine. I had a subscription to Vogue, and I had a subscription to Punch. And somehow, on my, my first day at the High School of Art and Design, specialized high school in New York for commercial art and illustration, there's another school called Music and Art, which later emerged with the School of Performing Arts and became uh, LaGuardia. Yeah. But that was the school that was the other art school at the time. So you had to pass a test and present a portfolio and, and, and do all the shit to get into, into, into the school. So my first day there, I don't know anybody. I'm sitting in the cafeteria and this uh, tall, lanky African-American kid walks up to me and he says, you like comics? And I said, no. <laughs> and he was undeterred. Get well, I really love comics, you know, and I got stacks of stacks of blah, blah, blah. And what? I know, I know some real cartoonists who want to come with me and, like, let's go visit some cartoonists. And, like, I'm, this is, like, happening really fast. <laughs> and he drags me over, and his name was John Smith. <laughs> he drags me over to Larry Ivey's house, and Larry Ivey was a, a fan and a collector. And how, how old are you in this story? Just curious. I'm, like, what, 15 or something? Wow. Yeah, 15. Okay. And he's got all these classic EC comics, and he's got all this weird stuff and paintings. He's got Frazetta originals. He's got wow. Al Williamson originals hanging up. And he does some freelance work for Wally Wood. Okay. And all these other artists keep dropping by his house, like Roy Crankle and Al Williamson and Angelo Torres. And somehow I got into that whole milieu and, and what met Wally Wood. And, uh, and that he would, on other days, and John Smith would say, hey, let's go visit Mad Magazine. <laughs> <laughs> you could do that. <laughs> and uh, he had no fear. Yeah. And yeah, let's just go up there. And we'd go up there and knock on the gate. They would let us in. <laughs> <laughs> we'd like go up and down the hallways and they had all these cover paintings hanging on the wall. Kelly Freeze paintings and these beautiful renderings and famous cartoons. And then we went to visit Help Magazine, which was what Harvey Kurtzman was putting out at the time. 
And it was one little room, like maybe 10 by 10, with a desk and a drawing table and a filing cabinet. And in this room was sitting, kid you not, Gloria Steinem and Terry Gilliam. Okay. Because Terry Gilliam was the art director and Gloria Steinem was the receptionist. And this is where Terry Gilliam met and got into Monty Python. Wow. Because in order to get the book in under budget, they would have to do these photo funnies, these photo comics. They were like mm-hmm. photo novellas mm-hmm. that he called fumettis, you know, that being the Italian for little puff of smoke. Mm-hmm. It's what the balloons above people's heads looked like. And so he, his job was to go to like all the comedy reviews and try to con comedians and actors and, and what, what, what not to pose for these fumettis for free, right? It was Gloria Steinem's job to like go and you know, convince the uh, you know, <laughs> famous actors and, and whatnot to like be on the cover for free. So one of the last remedies they did uh, had John Cleese in it, and that's how Gillian met Cleese. Wow! And, and literally, like a month or two later, the magazine folded, and Cleese had, had told Terry, "If you come to England, look me up." <laughs> Your teenage years were much cooler than mine, Larry. I know. <laughs> I was thinking as an origin story, this sounds like something straight out of an MCU movie that someone in the future sent back an alien to talk to young Larry Hama so that he would get into comics and they couldn't come up with a better name than just John Smith for this alien. It, it, all, it all makes perfect sense now. You just but, revealed oh, the plot of Secret Invasion, Dan. Exactly, I think so, I think so. Well, no, J.D. Smith is, was and is one of my best friends. He's a custom knife maker in Boston now, a very well-known art knife maker, and he's a smith. He stands in front of a forge, mm-hmm. hammering iron like all day. He's like built like this. His, his name was Destiny. He had to be a smith, right? Yeah. Yeah. So art and design was an incredible melting pool because it, it drew students from every borough, mm. every nationality and ethnic group you could think of. That's great. How, how did your parents feel about it? Like, did they have particular aspirations for you? Did they have things that they wanted you to be when you were young? Well, what could they do? <laughs> <laughs> well, first off, my dad died when I was in second grade. So it was mm. just my mom and she was working two or three jobs. You know, just keep us all rolling because I, my, the grandparents lived with us. Mm. Yeah. So she had four mouths to feed. So I don't know. I was left to my own devices. Yeah. It meant, you know, I, I sat around and drew. So as you're finishing school, what was that kind of first job out of school? Did you walk into someone else's office and be like, let me draw? I, I had a job drawing shoes. Okay. Sears Roebuck, Montgomery Ward, and J.C. Penny catalog. It was a, a huge studio. Yeah. And there was just three of us in the shoe room, and we drew all the shoes. Now, in, in, in those days, we're talking, we're talking about this is a studio that did all the catalogs for Sears Roebuck, Montgomery Ward, and J.C. Penny. That is like six Manhattan phone books a year worth of pages. And so, it was seasonal work. It was furious for like six to eight months out of the year. And then you just sort of sat around for four months. But it was a great learning experience. And but something that I didn't want to go back to after I got out of the Army. And a friend of mine from high school of art and design, Ralph Reese, had gotten work. Because I had introduced him after J.D. J. Smith introduced me to Hollywood. I introduced Ralph to Hollywood. And you know, he was actually starting to get work. 
this point. And he, and he said to me, look, look, like you can pencil faster than I can pencil and I can ink faster than you can ink. So if we put two of us together, probably we might be able to actually make some money doing this. <laughs> and so we started up this partnership. We did a lot of horror stories. And then we started doing stuff in National Lampoon. We had, a, we had illustration jobs in Esquire and Rolling Stone and the Electric Company magazine, uh, other children's television workshop publications. And that's how I got my you know, foot in the door there. And then Ralph said, hey, like Woody needs an assistant. He's out in Brooklyn, Wally Wood. So I, I went to work uh, part-time for Wally Wood at his studio in Brooklyn, working on, he was doing strips for the Overseas Weekly, which is an army newspaper called Cannon and Sally Forth. And we alternated writing the scripts for those. And then I would be the art assistant to the lettering too. So was all this happening um, still in like in your teenage years before you served in Vietnam? No, no, this was, this was in the seventies after, uh, after the army. And so about 73 or so I get, um, Woody moves up to Connecticut and he sticks me on Neil Adams, who has a studio on uh, 48th street and off of fifth Avenue called continuity. And it was sort of like an atelier for all the young comic book artists also. Because he was like renting out desk space at his <laughs> office for $50 a month and all the coffee you could drink. <laughs> so I got it's a modern-day co-working space. I got myself a desk at Continuity and, you know, started drawing. And, and the other advantage of Continuity was that he did a lot of this advertising work, mm-hmm. storyboards and motion boards, and you would farm it out. You know, you, you would, you know, he had the system of, like, breaking you know, the work down at the points, you pencil something and or colored something or ink something, you got a certain amount of points. And that's how we divvied up the money. But, uh, and you can make, at that time, you can make a lot more doing advertising in comics. So yeah, doing the advertising sort of paid for the expensive habit of drawing comic books. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, my first comic, monthly comic at Marvel was Iron Fist in Marvel Premiere. And my page rate at Marvel at the time for full page of finished pencils was twenty three dollars. Wow! And I could barely do a page a day. So even in like nineteen seventy three dollars, I was making less than I would if I'd been flipping burgers at Mickey Deeds. Yeah, but at least you got all that free coffee, right? I mean, yeah, it was a really bad coffee. <laughs> Those coffee service things with a missing coffee. Yeah, machine. I would love to know. Iron Fist these days has kind of an interesting, if not controversial, sort of history of kind of the idea of this character. Um, very white savior, like a, white savior. Yeah, yeah, white savior character putting on all the sort of the, the Orientalist kind of tropes and all the martial arts stuff, but it's a white dude. I know the uh, Netflix show for Iron Fist got a whole lot of flack when that came out some years ago. When you started working on this as your first book, did you think about that kind of stuff? Did that influence how you looked at the work or was this just like a job and you're trying to get paid? Well, two things there. I, I, first of all, that white guy isn't Iron Fist. Iron Fist is a title. Mm-hmm, right? mm-hmm, okay. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's a mantle. So my thinking was, that, okay, right now he's white. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, next year he could be something else. And in in the, uh, the six part miniseries I just did, uh, Iron Fist, Heart of the Dragon. You know, we set it up so that Danny Rand gives up the Iron Fist, and for a while it's being taken by an African American woman mm-hmm. who is 
mm-hmm. part of the whole Dormalash, yeah. But she gives it back. So it's now up in the air who, who's going to end up being the Iron Fist. But I'm pretty sure it's not going to be another white guy. <laughs> I want to back up a little, Larry, because what you're known for in a lot of your comics work is your authentic storytelling style, specifically when it comes to characters in the military. Obviously, a lot of folks know about your work on G.I. Joe. Dan and I were talking about this. We know you worked on the seminal series, The Nam, and I only knew about it because it came in like a Sam's Club packet of comics my mom bought me once. I never saw it on the spinner racks, but, and I read it and I didn't fully get it. I was like, okay, a war comic. It's like Howling Commandos, whatever. I didn't get it as a kid. And over the years, obviously I've read about what a seminal work it is. Dan and I went back and reread it in the last few weeks. So like, there's like this massive blind spot and just, it almost like triple underlines and bolds kind of Larry Hama understands authentic military storytelling. Like it just, even in the most, it was just so eye-opening, honestly, as I was reading these collected editions to read the letters pages, like the vets writing you about, wow. And I've even read stories about how kids who went to war or went went into service, even their reading of G.I. Joe was like, he was kind of telling it as it is. Obviously, your service informed that. So I want to ask a little bit about your decision to go to service, your observations in the service that led to, I, I want to apply this to my work. Like, how did you kind of merge those two worlds of yours? But beforehand, as that kid on the West Side, popping around to comic studios, choosing to enter the service, like what, what was that whole, kind of whole calculus of yours? back in the day i didn't choose to enter the service i got drafted yeah and and the thing is how did you feel about uh, that when that happened to you as a as a kid uh, I, did, I didn't like it nobody yeah. did yeah but the, the thing is that you know i i never thought i'd, I'd use it for anything because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. the last thing i wanted to do was a military comic i mean you know i mm-hmm. got into the business basically because i'm a duck man i wanted to do funny animals yeah but there were no funny animals to be done. So you had to do whatever was around. I actually started out in the undergrounds. What does that mean? Sorry, what do you mean? I was part of the original New York underground crew. Oh, Uh, My work was in Gothic Blimp Works, which was uh, sort of the the Sunday funnies at the East Village Other. It was a tabloid side color comic pages. And I was in there with Art Crumb, Art Spiegelman, Trina Robbins, Kim Deitch, and two other newcomers named Michael Kaluta and Bernie Wrightson. And we were, you know, doing this stuff because we couldn't get our foot in the door in the, in, in, you know, DC or Marvel. And we had our originally art directed and created by Vaughn Bodie. Uh-huh. And then it got taken over Kim Deitch and Trina Robbins. Bob Stewart got us all a show at the Corcoran Gallery of Modern Art in Washington, D.C., which is a fairly prestigious modern art gallery. We were the first show of underground comics in, I think, the world. And this was in the late 60s. So five, six years later, I'm still trying to you know, get in the door at the majors. We at and, and nobody was, they were closed shops. They had so many artists that could knock out two to three, you know, stories a week or something. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. They need these young tricks for who was slow. You know? I think I got my first job at DC doing an eight-page horror story because Neil Adams told them that if they gave me an eight-page story to pencil, he'd ink it. Wow. So that's how I got my first story. And I used that to get, a horror job, a black and white horror story from Marvel, which was putting out two or three black and white horror books at the time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And that's the sample that got me the Iron Fist gig. So it was all a progression. 
which fascinating. Neil kind of opened this door. I seem to remember from a previous story, you met Neil kind of popping into people's studios and offices, right? Like you were this kid. And I feel like that's so much of in certain industries to break in. You kind of have to know someone or someone has to kind of help you out for that. The fact that he said, hey, let this kid do it. I'll ink it because I'm Neil. Yeah, well, that's, you know, he, 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 when he got in the door at DC, he kept it open. And he's yeah. the guy that funneled Jeff Jones and Kaluta and Wrightson into DC when the, the old school editors there weren't interested in these new styles at all. Well, we can't use that guy. He doesn't he doesn't draw like uh, they had their ideas, set ideas of what these house styles were, you know, and all the new guys didn't fit into those styles. When you were starting off like in, in comics and kind of breaking into the the, in, the industry, like uh, especially in like the, the 60s, 70s, I imagine like it was still a very white, very male industry. Did you ever have flashbacks of grade school where you were the, the only non-white person in the room? Did that ever affect how you looked at the kind of work you want to take on or the kind of work that you were given? Did you feel it? Did you feel your difference in that industry when you started? No, because this is the same sort of ethnic mix that I grew up with. <laughs> I mean, it was like everybody in the business at the time was like either Jewish or Italian or Irish. And all the letterers were Asian. Mm. Really? Oh, yeah. It was like, well, Ben Oda used to edit, used to letter like half the stuff at King Features. And he edited tons of comics. And then he, from him, sprang off all these other Japanese-American letterers and there was a Mori Kuramoto, mm-hmm. who was like a mainstay of the Marvel bullpen. Mm-hmm. And this mm-hmm. is the beginning. It was Irving Watanabe, another letterer. So, and and plus there were these younger African-American artists coming out of Detroit. And, and there were guys like Billy Graham, this whole Detroit crew. So it wasn't a completely white playing field. Yeah. Larry, you mentioned Mori. Last year, you penned an op-ed. I think it was in one of the comic book trades about this kind of pretty dismaying story about kind of the treatment that that Asian folks, specifically Maury, got. Can you, I mean, I've read the story, but I'm not sure a lot of our listeners have heard it. Can you? Well, first of all, it, it, please. you have to understand yeah. that somebody outside of the sphere mm-hmm. is going to just told the plain facts is going to read it completely different. Right, right. The whole Marvel crew, like, used to play these, this, the, Pearl Harbor Day prank on on Maury every year, but they all loved him. Right. It was it wasn't like oh we're doing this to Maury because to be mean to him. Right. You it's know? it's a friendly it's a friendly ribbing among friends. Yeah. Yeah. He he didn't like it apparently. Mm-hmm. You know, and he sort of erupted at one point. And the, and the thing was that he never told anybody that he had been in the 442nd Infantry mm-hmm. Regiment and gone through Italy and France and Germany in World War II in like the most decorated small infantry unit in the war. They racked up all their medals, mostly on Purple Hearts. The unit was like wiped out like twice or something and just replenished with with replacements. And they didn't find out any of this until passed away. And his daughter came and and, uh, took the remains back to Hawaii to be buried in the National Cemetery at Punchbowl. That sort of illuminated the whole thing about the Pearl Harbor days. Yeah, it just made everybody feel really sort of uncomfortable. So yeah, you can't judge a book by its cover, right? It's uh, 
because I, I mean, the story is just that he was a Japanese American. And again, in post-war America, I, I feel like my only inkling into this is like you watch a show like Mad Men or a period piece and you kind of see how the returning soldiers, it was a thing that happened over there. So kind of the stereotypes and the biases persist. It, it just was a thing. And he was the Japanese American guy in the office, but he just kind of took it until he couldn't, right? Right. Well, the thing was, that's the thing that you, you, you're taught to do. Yeah. Right. Fit in, fit in, right. Go along yeah, with that. Yeah. You're taught the Japanese ever saying the nail that sticks out gets hammered down. Yeah. <laughs> Don't make waves. Don't stand out. Yeah. yeah, which is counter to the American idea of the squeaky wheel gets the, the grease that's sticking out will, is going to take you further. So it's always interesting to see these cultural things sort of clash, right? Well, that's, but there is these breaches in, in, in the fact that like a, a lot of Western folks don't understand Asian modes of thinking about certain things. Right, right. You know, it's just like they don't understand that like... Face, for example, right? Yeah, not, not just face, but like stupid things like you could never go up to like you know, a, a Chinese mother and compliment their baby. <laughs> <laughs> That's like, you'll get this like look of shock, you know, and fear. Yeah, yeah. Because... This is old line superstition about mm -hmm. spirits. If you draw attention yep, yep. to that child, how good that child is, the gods will like yeah. you know, do bad things to it. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. What? We've made it, dude. I mean, I love all of our sponsors equally, but I love some more equally. <laughs> yeah, Sharon, not only is this sponsor a big deal, it's actually about a topic that you and I are both super, super passionate about, COVID prevention. Yeah, you're right, dude. We're more than two years in, and as a country, we're still dealing with COVID-19. This is something we can't help but keep in mind in our day-to-day -day lives at home and work, especially for those of us with immunocompromised people in our lives, our kids, our parents, and even all of our friends' kids and parents. And we want to make sure all of you, our super smart, savvy, and good-looking listeners of this pod, are vaccinated and boosted. And that you're encouraging all of the folks in your lives to do so, too. This AAPI Heritage Month, we can honor our AANHPI heritage communities and families today by getting vaccinated for a safer tomorrow. Wait, Roman, I thought it was just AAPI, Asian American Pacific Islander. What's the NH in AANHPI stand for? Uh, it's Asian American, Native Hawaiian, and Pacific Islander. Oh, snap. We got to get some of them on this podcast. Hmm, I think we need to go on location to record a chat with some Native Hawaiian guests in their Native Hawaiian islands. I'll settle for any Pacific Islands. <laughs> True that. But wait, hang on. Uh, what are we talking about again? We're talking about making sure we're all vaccinated. <laughs> and boosted. And boosted. For serious, look, vaccinations greatly reduce your chance of having COVID symptoms like fatigue, pain, and memory problems that last for months. You know, beyond getting sick, long COVID is one of the COVID symptoms that really concerns me. I can barely keep everything going as it is. COVID is serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Yeah, I mean, honestly, we are both parents with young kids and aging parents, so COVID is no joke. So we all have to do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and the communities we work and live in. Protect your tomorrow with a vaccine today. The COVID-19 vaccine is safe, effective, and free. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find vaccines and boosters near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. 
This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. And now, back to our show. This makes me think about the idea that when you started editing the NAM, the, the stuff I've read around it is that you were very much determined that you didn't want this to be a whole kind of John Wayne, you know, guns a-blazing kind of uh, story. You want it to be as realistic as possible. You wanted right. it to be told from the GI's point of view. Did you ever feel a responsibility as an Asian American? And we can talk about the whole idea of like even identifying as an Asian American versus a third generation uh, Sansei uh, Japanese American. But the fact that this war was fought in an Asian country against an Asian people, did you feel a certain amount of responsibility to A, tell the story from the American GI's point of view, which was the, the central focus, but also not to kind of slip into either stereotypes or attitudes or other very easily pervasive things about the Vietnamese? Well, yeah, we wanted to, we did a whole issue that was told from a, a Viet Cong's point of view, which also explained the back history of how the- With the Japanese. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With how the war and the actually happened. and. No, you have to be responsible for that. And I said, look, you can't have NVA or VC jump out from behind perfectly good cover and get mowed down. If you're going to show a firefight, show what a firefight is really like. It's like chaos. You, know, you don't see the other guy. You're firing into the darkness. <laughs> you're, you're shooting at flashes in the jungle. You're and at the same time, your guts feel like there's a, a frozen bowling ball sitting in there and your sphincter is puckered up, you want to throw up, you've, you've got uh, fungus infections from your knee to your navel. <laughs> Everything that doesn't hurt itches. And then this is all this other shit on top of it. I said, look, you have to try to convey that sort of thing about, about what's going on here. Not, it's not just heroics. Mm -hmm. One thing that in those days in the army that they constantly, constantly battered into you was like, don't John Wayne it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Don't be a hero. Mm -hmm. Heroes tend to get their buddies killed. Mm -hmm. That your endeavor is in the form of teamwork. Mm -hmm. And that the, the, the highest compliment a soldier can pay to another soldier is well, he did his job. That's all you're expected to do. You mm -hmm. do your job. You're one piece of the teamwork. And that's what gets something. When somebody tries to individually supersede that mm -hmm. and make this, this decision to like jump up and charge or something, he's endangering the integrity of the group. And these are important lessons. You know, the, the other important lesson that I think the most important lesson that, that you learn in the military is that you're directly responsible for everybody that reports to you. Mm -hmm. you know, and the person that you report to is directly responsible for you. Mm -hmm. you know, so if you're only like a corporal, you know, you're responsible for those privates that report to you. And this is not something that's taught in the MBA programs at Yale and Harvard. <laughs> yeah. it's like you know greed is good and it's every man for himself and it's that sense of of, of duty and responsibility that, that that i find that i found actually appealing about uh, military service and i i think that that's what's appealing to a lot a lot of the readers at the time yeah and and at the time this book was uh being written i mean we were less than 20 years out from the war and right. did you or the main writer doug murray who was also himself a vietnam vet during the process of working on this book 
because it's got to be so personal to you and and it is inherently personal to your experience and that's kind of part of the, the authenticity and realism you wanted to get out of the book was it ever did it ever feel cathartic did it feel re-traumatizing was it triggering like could you remove yourself from the work from your you know what I mean like where do you how did you strike that balance well I was the editor so I didn't have to go through that stuff. I, those are things I feel sometimes when I write a very personal story for G.I. Joe or Wolverine. Uh, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Um, basing it on something personal that happened to me. But with, with the NOM, I just, I came up with the basic concept that it was, it would be very real, wouldn't be Sergeant Fury, and it would be... Uh, real time, real, real time. time. And that characters would rotate in and rotate out just like, and it would be very real chronologically and that we would start at a specific date in history and match it up all, all along the way i thought that was very important what was the reception to it after the fact or during the fact even right mm -hmm. people said it's a more accurate retelling than platoon issue one outsold x-men and this is in like the claremont era like that's right. mind-blowing <laughs> when i read that i was like what you how did you sell this idea in because you were the editor like do you well no i mean basically jim shooter had the idea he said look let's do a comic book about vietnam yeah so he did he come to you because he knew you were a vet well he comes to me he, he's got a cover mocked up when he, he took a, a gi joe cover of like stalker looking through leaves with camo on his face and he just like reused that image and put the nom above it and he puts this on my desk and he says we want to do this comic book called the nom and you know we want you to edit it you know and i said oh okay so what's it about and he says i don't know all i have is this cover <laughs> <laughs> so i had a mocked up cover and the title and i had to come up with everything else so i i called in doug and i called in michael golden and we sat down and we just talked it out and said hey look this is well, follow this one guy getting on it started with getting on the plane at SeaTac and then followed him through in processing and the repl depot and all that stuff let's let's make this work and i was only concerned with getting the first issue put together and no i you know, we had no idea where it was going to go but that's the way it always is yeah uh, larry we spent a lot of time talking about the, the body of your work the perspective in your work but even you're, you continue to do interesting work for the last 20 years and you you have an interest in the martial arts and you've consulted on media projects can can you talk about how you pulled your heritage forward, your Japanese-American heritage forward into some of your work? Has martial arts always been part of your life or was that something that oh, came yeah, right? Yeah, I started out playing Kodokan Judo when I was like nine or 10. Wow. You know, I was brought up nominally a Buddhist. We belonged to the New York Buddhist Church in the Upper West Side. They had uh, what they called the Buddhist Academy, which is this building next door. And they had martial arts classes. They had Japanese dancing classes. They had flower arrangement. They had brush painting, calligraphy. It was a whole like little cultural center. And on Saturdays, they had Japanese school. So it was a, it was like this sort of cultural center you know, for Japanese Americans. So I studied martial arts there and I went to Japanese school on mm -hmm. Saturdays for like five or six years. So I have sort of what's the equivalent of a, a Japanese second grade education. <laughs> I could, I, I know the phonetic alphabet. Yeah, yeah. Maybe two to three hundred kanji or Chinese characters. I think grade levels in in Japan and China are based on how many characters. You, I'm way down there at the, at the lower spectrum. 
but you know how to use a sword. <laughs> well, yeah, I mean, I, I know all the etiquette and stuff like that. That was what helped me in when I got cast in Pacific Overtures. Yeah, yeah. Said, uh -huh. Oh, you already know how to do all this stuff. I, I knew how to, you know, bow and kneel, the, all the cor correct procedures. Mm. And when I went for my first costume fitting, you know, they had a formal kimono, divided skirts, the hakama, you know, and the costume. And I was wondering, what, what's, what's going on here? So they cut me this <laughs> fitting room. And like the costume designer, Florence Klotz, brings in this hakama, you know, this divided skirts, big long cords. And she hands it to me. And then she just sits down and like keeps watching me. Like I'm supposed to put this on in front of her. <laughs> so I put it. I, I put it on and I start to tie it and she like <laughs> it jumps out of her chair. He goes, oh my God, he knows how to tie it. <laughs> she runs out into, into the, the rest of the studio and brings in all the, the, the cutters and the seamstresses. <laughs> Show them how you do it. <laughs> because they found these designs in books. Mm -hmm. you know, this is before the internet. So what you see in the book is everything already tied. Mm -hmm. you know? so, you can, so figuring out how to, you know, reverse engineer that. Yeah. So you just instantly became the expert with just a little bit of lived experience. Suddenly you were the, the set expert on these, on these costumes. Well, that's, that's the way great. it is with everything. Yeah. You know? Yeah. Having, having been through a good 50 years of the comic book industry back all the way to where comic books for, for a long time have been very much thought of as a little bit fringy, mostly for kids, not as serious, not serious literature. And in the past few decades, we've seen sort of uh, the graphic novel form being taken really seriously as literature. We've had things as, you know, diverse as the 9-11 commission report being printed, you know, or being created as a comic book, which by the way, that graphic novel helped me understand that whole report the way that a, a full written report did not. That's the power of graphic literature. But now with, we've had a good um, decade of the MCU and pop culture, what we would have considered like comic book and geek culture is super, super mainstream now. For you, what's been your sort of perspective uh, or take on where the state of sort of comic book pop culture is today versus when you got started? Is it better? Is it worse? Are there directions you'd like to see things move in? Well, first of all, there's much more of it. Yeah. Than ever. I can't keep I mean, up. Yeah. It's, yeah, so much. it's, it's so much. like the Ted Sturgeon principle about the 90% the principle mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That, that like, well, 90% of everything is trash. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I mean, back when Dickens was writing all that stuff, that was trash. Yeah. And there were other people that were considered really good writers. He was, he was paid <laughs> by the word. He was paid by the word. Yeah. That's right. why. <laughs> and, he had, and he had to knock it out by the week. And these other sort of artsy writers, you, nobody knows who they are anymore. And, you know, and everyone knows who Dickens is. It's really impossible to tell what is going to stand up to the test of time like that. It's, remember how terrific everyone thought the movie Gandhi was? It wasn't it was Oscar. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like... Ben Kingsley, ah. Uh. Yeah. He's half, he's half Indian. He's half Indian, so it's okay. <laughs> it's kind of painful to look at now. Yeah. When you look at some of these movies that, that beat out other movies for Oscars, you go, what the 
how were they thinking? So the contemporary sensibility versus the test of time. Yeah, it's you have no idea what's going to uh, stick to the wall when you throw it up against it. You know, mm. if if you could give your past self, that kid who was getting into fashion design for, <laughs> for very noble reasons, right? <laughs> uh, riding the the bus and the train, ninety minutes both ways. If you could give him a piece of advice, what what would you tell him? Floss more. <laughs> <laughs> that's good me too me too <laughs> he, the, won't listen, he won't he won't listen though will he the most important piece of advice i could give to my young self is floss every flipping day <laughs> i'm gonna play that for my daughter soon <laughs> <laughs> because you will be thankful much years later when you're not having multiple stages of periodontal surgery that's the one thing they left out for the alien John Smith to tell you when you were young. They forgot right. that one. <laughs> Larry, we got to wrap up in a few minutes, but we want to ask a couple of fun questions. Dan, do you think Larry's ready for speed round? I think so. Okay. Larry, are you ready for speed round? Okay. Larry, what's what's something about you that no one expects? Excuse me? What is some, Larry, what is something about you that no one expects? Uh, that I'm hard of hearing. <laughs> <laughs> well played. All right. So this is where we're trying not to fanboy too much and be, you know, as professional as we can as podcasters. Who is your favorite G.I. Joe character and why is it not Snake Eyes and why is it Tunnel Rat? Well, it is Snake Eyes. Really? I thought you were a Tunnel Rat guy. Well, I'm no. My face is Tunnel Rat's face. (laughs) His his biography is is closer to Charlie Chen than anybody else. A friend of mine that I was in a band with, whose family is Trinidadian Chinese. Mm -hmm. I mean, I guess yeah. Snake Eyes is pretty much the only right answer. I think (laughs) there is no other answer. Maybe Storm Shadow. What is something that you today in the contemporary era in film? books even comics that that you relate to that i relate to mm-hmm. huh. no, what what i read is mostly like nordic noir okay. and napoleonic sea sagas I, i've read all the patrick o'brien sea novels maybe like 23 volumes I, i've re, i've reread them three times what uh, do you like about them so much why does it stick with you the completeness of the world the other novelist in that genre that i really like is uh, frederick marriott who was the only author of that genre who actually had been a frigate captain during the Napoleonic Wars. <laughs> mm. and, uh, he brought amazing little factual pieces of imagery that mind-boggling. And, you, and it's more mind-boggling when you realize he's relating something he actually saw. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> 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 and, and there was one Marriott book we were in a broadside battle with, with a French frigate. He describes this tiny nine-year-old or 10-year-old midshipman who was, whose job it was to run around the deck and pick up cannonballs with burning fuses and toss them over the rail into the sea. <laughs> wow. <laughs> That's something I've never seen in a movie. <laughs> yeah, so there could have been there could have been worse jobs for you, right? Um, Larry, what is your favorite mom dish or that childhood dish that brings you comfort? Favorite? Oh my God, there's so many. With mochazuke, which is green tea over rice, mm. is a favorite comfort food. But my go-to comfort foods aren't necessarily Japanese. Mm. 
I mean, there's stuff that crosses both cultures. Like in, in Japanese, we have something called okayu, which in, in Chinese is juk. Mm-hmm. Yeah. <laughs> I cannot, I've tried, man. I'm an open-minded person. I can't get into yeah. juk. <laughs> yeah, I love juk. Guy yeah. juk, chicken juk with the ginger and scallions. Oh my God. My wife's family uh, puts cornflakes in it. Yeah. What? Okay, that's a bridge too far for me. But yeah, juk, juk, kanji, that kind of stuff. It's, it's when you think of comfort food. Sometimes I think of like, what food do I want when I'm sick? Yeah, and that's that's exactly. Kanji. That's yeah. a kanji is what Asian grandmothers give little kids when they're sick. Exactly. It's easy to yeah to get down and digest. Yeah. The more complicated dishes aren't really comfort food. Right. <laughs> Larry, what's your least favorite food? Uh, let's see, cauliflower. <laughs> Man, <laughs> fighting, fighting words. <laughs> Can't say cauliflower. Yeah. Who's someone out there in the world that you would really love to talk to on a podcast? Mm. I think I'd like to talk to Brando. Mm. If you only get one question to ask Brando, what are you going to ask him? Well, it's all kind of personal because I, I once actually did have a phone conversation with Brando. Wow. Where, where he, he he yelled and screamed at me for about three or four minutes. <laughs> Wait, what? Well, you can't you can't okay, just yeah. What 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 did you do to Brando, man? <laughs> Why is he yelling and screaming at you? I really can't. All right, all right, all right. It's, it's, it, it involves a lady friend. Wow. Okay. All right, all right. We'll we'll let you off the hook for that one. Okay. Larry, in closing, as as someone who's seen so many things, done so many things, and paved the way for so many of us, what does being a modern minority mean for you? Well, this is a constantly shifting thing. In not too long, Asians and Latinos are, are not going to be a minority <laughs> if things keep going. The, the curve maintains. You know, the, the whole minority concept itself is racist. Uh-huh. It's an acknowledgement of a physical fact, but it it, it, it also you know, creates those parameters. You see, mm-hmm. at, at some time, you have to stop thinking of ourselves as minorities and uh, come up with a with a better enveloping pronoun. I mean, I, I think it took the gay and lesbian activists. That was a huge step forward when it the they brought up the whole issue of pronouns mm-hmm. and, and how the language and, and things like pronouns can really you know, affect your perception of everything. Uh, and it, you know, naming something alters your perception of it. Mm-hmm. So I think we have to come up with something. You know, I, I noticed this when, when I was much younger and, and, and traveling around Europe, wherever, that we're here in the, in the States, I would always be considered an outlander. But if it was in England or France, you know, I was an American. (laughs) (laughs) Because that's how I walk and talk and and everything else. If I go to Japan, same thing. I'm not truly one of them. So I think it starts to become a labeling issue. Yeah. And the label is more important than we want to admit. And all these stupid issues that we have now are mostly about labels. If they didn't call it critical race theory... (laughs) There would not be a problem. <laughs> yeah. It was just called history. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> I mean, or unqualified history. Yeah. All of this stuff 
it becomes becomes triggers and 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 whatever. So and, and this harkens back to what I was saying about you know the the, the Chinese guy I knew who was called Tex. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> it's how it's how you walk, it's how you talk, right? Yeah, and these are our perceptions. It's it's, it's why TV news you have local newscasters. And I travel a lot going to cons. I turn on the TV in the, in the hotel room. And like, oh, they sound different. <laughs> because it, it's, it's all regional. All that is, is getting ironed out there in the United States. It used to be 50 years ago, you could go from state to state, and each state had its own cuisine. Right. You know, people dress differently. Now, there's a KFC in every little town, there's a Benetton. In every city, there's gaps. Everybody looks the same, and you know, and everybody's watching the same shows on TV and on, and movies, and they're talking the same. Regional dialects used to be much more distinct, and word usage used to be much more distinct. A hundred years ago, it would be you'd be hard put to understand some people sometimes. Mm-hmm, you, know, mm-hmm. you were from the Ozarks and you went to Brooklyn, there'd be no communication. And even the stupidest things. I remember going to the Midwest and realizing the, the Braunschweiger they were talking about was really liverwurst. <laughs> or that, hey, that's what you call pop is what we call soda. Yeah, or cola. Uh-huh. No, oh, it's yeah. in, in the oh, South, everything's a Coke. Everything's a Coke. Everything's a Coke. Everything's a Coke. Yeah. So, uh, and, and these are sort of major cultural things. Yeah. Well, Larry, this has just been such a treat to not just geek out on comics, but to talk about culture and perspective on everything you've seen. And I, I say it sincerely, thank you for doing all the work you've done and continuing to have conversations like this and kind of push all of us in our thinking. It, it really means a lot. Yeah. Thank you, Larry. Oh, thank you for having me. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Want to learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us, hi mom, at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon.